This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, Adam, thanks so much for joining us in the show. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Uh, so obviously you have uh, a book here called The Distracted Mind. You are also a founder of The Neuroscape, uh, chief science advisor of Achille Interactive, Sensync, uh, partner at Jazz Venture Partners. This is one of the reasons why I was really caught my eye. I mean, the book itself is very fascinating, but you're such a renaissance man and you're like a neuroscientist, author, inventor, photographer, entrepreneur. These are the types of people that I've personally admired, you know, you got the Benjamin Franklins, the Leonardo da Vinci's <laughs> of the world that um, are just so passionate about multiple different things. You know, I would love to just dig into kind of where for you, the curiosity, uh, like the origins of all of this curiosity really spawned from, is it just something that you've been born with or something you've developed mm-hmm. and kind of accumulated over time? Huh, that's a really good question. I don't know if I've been asked that question. Uh, I, you know, I ever since I was a little kid, I had a lot of curiosity and a lot of energy. I'd say curiosity and energy are two things you need to be a Renaissance man, if that's really a thing. Um, and you know, you, just your desire to pursue things that excite you um, is critical for that path. And that's how I've always been since I was little. Now, it's not like I do everything and like everything, but I do have a pretty broad palette of things that have inspired me in my life. And when I feel that degree of passion, I go for it and and find a way to incorporate it. Uh, So, yeah, I guess as long as I can remember, I've kept a pretty broad scope of interests active at, at one time. Yeah, and I'm similar. So I'm 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 just curious to know like how you have evolved into creating these portfolio of different things that you're passionate about. Is it just the one thing that you're interested in, particularly neuroscience, and then one thing led to another, and you just kind of stacked upon, mm-hmm. you know, projects and passions and hobbies over time. Yeah, that is a, is a really good question because it certainly wasn't my goal to just do a lot of things. That was never it. Uh, I largely was led along a, a road that I didn't know I was going to be traveling by a couple of very early foundational influences. And for me, it's really been trying to accomplish some high-level goals that have uh, lots of different branches. So like what I'll describe sometimes is I feel in my life, what I really focus on is, is a tree. And that tree has lots of branches, but I don't have more than one tree. And so, so there is a common thread through everything I do, whether it's photography, uh, my research companies, my investments, my speaking, my writings, they're all in a, a, common, uh, a common arena. And therefore, I don't feel very spread thin, to use that term. I feel pretty focused and pretty directed. So I think on the outside, someone would look and say, wow, that is 
you know, too much for, for anyone to do or that you can't do all those things well or you can't really be having fun doing that many things. But to me, I'm just really doing one thing. It just has lots of different expressions. And what is that one thing for you? What's the arena that you see as this one tree? Let's say a common, a common, you know, the, the tree is wide, right? So it has lots of different um, aspects to it and ways of describing it. But I'd say a, a common thread through everything is sort of an exploration of, of nature. And that might have different outcomes. Uh, so in my photography, I'm exploring nature, uh, like this photograph behind me, uh, for, for aesthetic symmetry and, and uh, connection with, with the natural world. Uh, in my research, I'm exploring nature for understanding and for organizational principles and for making an impact in people's lives by knowing how our brains work. But it's really just this journey to understand nature that almost defines everything I do. Right, right. Nature could be, you know, the, the outside nature, but it could also be the brains and the physical parts of our of our bodies. It, it's, you're really just mm-hmm. extrapolating a lot of different things with nature alone, right? Yeah. And, you know, it, it is all part of nature. You know, the, the illusion that our brains and our bodies are somehow separate from the natural world is probably one of the most destructive uh, things that has happened in our, in our past as, as humans, right? It's what leads to climate change or at least our inability to deal with it. Uh, we are one with nature, and, and that is a fundamental principle for how the brain works. So, you know, for me, it's it's really, it just feels the same, looking outside or looking inside. And there's mm-hmm. lots of, there's lots of symmetries, you know, the branching of dendrites, the branching of trees, and uh, organizational principles of natural ecosystems and neural networks in the brain. Uh, so, yeah, it just feels the same to me. Got it. By the way, what, what's the thing that you have in your chalkboard? Were you like, uh, were you, were you, it looks like some sort of like complicated equation that you're working well, on right now. Well, the funniest thing is, I was, uh, I was telling you, this is my first day back in the office since COVID. Yeah. So it's been oh, well over a year. And I walked in here, I was like, what was I writing on this board? <laughs> oh, it's from before. It's, like, it, it's all from before. I, it's like a time capsule in here, like my last emails and the folders <laughs> that were open. It's like, I feel like Rip Van Winkle. I fell asleep and woke up and I was like, well, what was I doing in March of, of 2020? Uh, yeah, this is a, a um, sort of schematic that I was writing out to describe what was a year and a half ago, a goal, and now is the reality of bringing psychedelic wow. research into our center. So what I was trying to do here is create a map of where the field was and where we could make a contribution. That's, that's what that is. I, I love like writing things down, like journaling is one of my favorite things to do. And looking back, particularly, even just after like, you know, you went on an RV trip for, for 65 days and just have that clarity of mind or even just time to accomplish the goals that you have and to look back and say like, wow, like I've evolved as a person. I'm a different, I think in a different way. And even the things that you may, maybe, maybe it's not the case for this one, but I'm sure it's something you have some sort of feeling like, oh, like this is, this is behind me now. Like this is no, you know, there, there's something that you figured out that you maybe you haven't before. Yeah, it, it is a, it is a cool thing to look back on notes and see. And sometimes the opposite happens. Like you're like, 
I look back on things I wrote uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when I was just discovering nature photography. And now through the lens of where I've come over the last 20 years, look back and say, wow, I, you know, yes, those, those thoughts were immature now in retrospect, but they were the same thoughts I have right now. Like it was, it was preserved. Some things mm. disappear completely and other things to just stay deep and they are really core to your thinking. And it's fun to see both of those. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this somewhat relates to the idea of, of, of focus because, you know, it, as you said, you have this one big tree with different branches of things that you're working on. And I've always wondered, you know, if, is there a greater benefit of working on multiple different things that may not necessarily relate um, versus, you know, just doubling down on like one singular thing. And the reason why I ask is like, there's pros and cons to both. I feel like I certainly have, I love to do multiple things and I often get ideas or knowledge transfers or even resources from something that I was working on and that may not at the time have been nothing like what I thought would be helpful, but then it transfers over to help this new thing. Whereas if I was just working on this one thing, oftentimes I feel like I would have just been so limited and in the trenches to really explore and look at a high level of the things that I was working on. And I guess I'm curious to know, like if photography helps you with things that you're doing with neuroscience or investing helps with other things. Uh, like, uh, like, I guess that's kind of the idea, right? It all kind of feeds and helps. There's some sort of transfer benefits to each of these. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a good point. I, I, I personally like to put my time and my efforts in one thing. Now that one thing could be really broad and have so many different perspectives that you do learn from each other. So even though to me, nature photography and neuroimaging feel really similar, uh, they are really different. And I learn from them and they inform each other in unique perspectives. Same way, for example, when I became interested in the intersection of neuroscience and music and neuroscience and meditation and started working with artists on video game development in the context of neuro-inspired you know, uh, uh, cognitive enhancement technologies, they were all in the same domain. They all had the same outcomes that I was interested in, but they were such different windows into that. And they also involved so many different uh, types of interactions with really different people that they, they make, you know, me increase my creativity and they have all of that type of crosstalk and inspiration, but it's, still within one area. I, I have yeah. some friends and especially research colleagues, they'll, they'll have really disparate research focuses, two of them, and they need like entirely different introductions. And then they, they pull on an entirely different scientific literature to make their cases. The funders are just completely unrelated to each other. I mean, I get it. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, and it's, it's cool that they can pull that off, but it's certainly not something I'm interested in. I like having one underlying message, one voice that I speak in one, one big passion and goal. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And this, this, you know, of course relates to your book, the distracted mind, and it's probably, it, it's somewhat different, right? Because you're talking about, uh, it's not like within one second you're working on this and then something else and the other that would just really be, 
multitasking in that sense. But mm-hmm. my kind of first overview question that, you know, I'm sure you, but I think this will be helpful for the audience, which is what is it about the makeup of the human brain that makes it so vulnerable to distraction, particularly around mm-hmm. technology? Yeah, that's, a, that's sort of the fundamental question that I was exploring in The Distracted Mind and really doing so in that book from an evolutionary perspective. So there's lots of ways of answering that question just completely mechanistically, which is what I had done before that, studying the brain with functional imaging to understand where are the limitations in processing that cause what you said to happen. And that's part of the story. Uh, the Distracted Mind book was really my attempt to take it a step further, extrapolate out and say, we're learning in the laboratory why we are limited in terms of processing more than one stream of information or managing distraction. Why is that? How, where, what's the underlying root cause of that? And it seems when you're looking for an underlying cause, you're looking at the past and the foundations, which are in our evolutionary uh, backgrounds. And so... Yeah. My view of it is that our brains evolved in a certain way uh, to give us a survival advantage. And that was really this sort of rapid exchange between us and the world around us. That's sort of what I was alluding to early, that we live in interface and a cycle with the natural world. And it's pretty obvious, right? We need food from the environment. We, we need mates out in the environment. We need to avoid toxins and predators in the environment. And so the ability to survive requires a very rapid, uh, even even um, reflexive process by which we can move through different environments and, and seek out the, the things we need and avoid the things that are threatening us. And our brains, although have evolved remarkably since very lower order animals where those mechanisms first became uh, foundational, it's still largely what our brain does. It's these reflexive mm. loops of interactivity with the environment. And so because of that, even though we have this more evolved goal-setting ability, what we call top-down attention, our ability to make a decision about what we pay attention to, ignore things, and just direct our limited resources where we want them, we have that capacity but we also have a lot of those ancient bottom-up susceptibilities that allow our attention to be pulled away, even independent of our goals. And that's, yeah. that's one of the principles that I explore in, in that book. And would you say that, because obviously the human brain has, as you mentioned, evolved and we've, uh, we've kind of, we, maybe we've added on certain elements that are positive for us, like the top-down approach or, or, or interaction. Um, how much has the bottom-up that the reflexive uh, mentality, how much of that has diminished? I believe it has diminished, and I think the evidence is all around us. So you can, you know, and I just think of daily examples. Like you can be lost in top-down thought that you walk right by a good friend, even though they were in your visual sight. Uh, Or, you know, you are looking into your phone with such intensity that you step into a street in front of a car, right? These are things that other animals don't really do, right? They're not, if they have any top-down abilities for goal-directed thought, and I think that's debatable, uh, it's different from different, you know, across different animal species, but 
their bottom up, their sensitivity, their alert system um, of danger and of you know familiarity, the things that drive their success in surviving in a, in a very rough world is certainly at a higher level. So our yeah. top-down abilities have definitely let us sacrifice some of that, but it's there. You know, someone calls your name, you're going to pay attention independent of how much you're focusing on your, your text. Uh, yeah. and, and likewise, you know, we, we, we still have that, uh, that draw, but it is definitely shifted. And just to clarify for people that aren't, aren't familiar with the terminology, top-down is... Yeah, so top-down is goal-directed. So our top-down attention is when we make a decision and then we direct our attention based upon our goals, what we're trying to accomplish. Like you're listening right now and you're really trying to ignore other things. Your goal is to focus your hearing and, and a certain domain of your hearing or what you're looking at on this podcast. While bottom-up attention is the attention that's driven by the environment, not by you. So something, you know, threatening enters your immediate surroundings uh, or you hear something or see something, you will pay attention to it, even though your goal was not to pay attention to it. Most right. other animals, they live their lives in a loop where the bottom up information guides their responses and over and over. We've sort of broken that loop. The human brain has this, what I think of as sometimes pause. And in that pause where, is where we insert our goal. Got it. Got it. And I guess today, the kind of the main vulnerabilities that we have because of this bottom-up thinking is our technologies, right? We've got our phones, which has sound, which has vibrations. And is the idea there that the sound that our phone makes, whether it's notifications from social media or someone calling us, we, I guess, incorrectly perceive from above, from that bottom up thinking, thinking that it's going to be something that's threatening, like a lion that's going to come at us or another hunter that's going to come at us because of the sound that they may make when they're trying to approach us. Is that kind of the idea is that sound or visual things that are new or novel is potentially threatening to us? And that's what we yeah, potentially potentially threatening or potentially rewarding, like finding a a food cache or something, right. you know, right. a, um, a pond of water in a barren landscape that you need to survive. So it could be threat or reward, but in, in general, we're, we're, we are very responsive to novelty. And so we have this susceptibility that is often hijacked by the buzzes and lights and sounds that our technology devices use. And even after a while, maybe you are like, okay, I am going to not um, allow notifications to get pushed to me anymore. So you start take maybe you're aware of this because it's not subtle, right? And, right? and you take steps to minimize the bottom-up information. The problem is that if you started with multiple screens and tabs open and, and, and buzzes coming in and your pocket vibrating um, and go about living like that for long enough, it creates habits, habits of behavior where you just become used to checking these sources. And so even when you start building the, um, the parameters around how you interact with them, the allure um, is, is still there because it basically became a habit. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And that's not something that we can just turn off. Right. I mean, we can certainly diminish it through things like meditation and stuff like that, uh, that I'm sure we'll go through, but um, 
I guess yeah, it's not easy to just turn off those, those ingrained habits. Yeah. I mean, with, when you think about like your, your, your grandchildren, your great grandchildren, like that, that generation, because as you mentioned, it's been millions of years, but the human brain hasn't evolved that much. Whereas the way technology and how that's being integrated into our bodies and our everyday surroundings is at a growing at an exponential rate. Mm-hmm. With that said, when you're looking at, you know, the, even, even our children or our grandchildren, that generation of people that are going to be so ingrained with technology way more than we have, whereas their brains probably have not evolved as much as the growth of technology. I mean, where, where are we headed in? What are, what are the, the, the downsides? You know, if you were to kind of take a black mirror approach, I guess, of mm-hmm. what would be happening in society and humans when in 200 years, this continued rate keeps increasing. Yeah, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of the the black mirror right now. So it's not really hard to extrapolate. If we continue to live in a in an environment that fragments our attention and degrades our ability to focus in a in a single task in a directed way, it has consequences across every aspect of how we we live, how we interact with people we care about, how we perform at work or school, how we drive. I mean, it, it really cascades across every aspect of our life. And it, I think it diminishes us as humans in a lot of ways. Uh, some of the highest order abilities are compassion and long-term decision-making that are needed to deal with this super complex world we live in and crises that we're facing like climate change really demand us to be paying attention in a sustained way and making these very thoughtful sort of time-delayed decisions, if we're fragmenting our capacities by constantly shifting and never really allowing for thoughtful, deep, sustained engagement, I don't know if we could even survive on this planet, right? It's, it, it, it really is not um, going to be a good future for us. And I think that people are wrapping their heads around that right now. Yeah. Yeah. In, in some ways, like just the ability to focus and, you know, sit on your ass and do one thing for mm-hmm. multiple hours and just sustain is often, it's going to be like your superpower in some ways. It's going to be your competitive advantage versus the other person that does one thing for two seconds and then gets distracted and never really gets anywhere, right? It's the person that's just kind of running in a circle and doesn't really mm-hmm. have any momentum. Um, Undoubtedly. Yeah. I think for a while, maybe like 15 years ago, when I was doing my work on this in the early days, there was a lot of talk of people like saying, I'm a great multitasker or even putting it in their resumes. And now I think there's a little bit of a backlash and um, employers and employees thinking, oh, maybe that's not the type of skill set that I want to emphasize. Maybe I would, would rather emphasize that I'm a really good singular focused deep thinker and, and people of sustaining thought. Uh, so it's funny how that's even shifted over the last 15 years that I've been working in this field. Right. And there's just enough science and data at this point. I mean, can you even become trained as like a multitasker where you can actually hold your attention for multiple things? Is that, is that something that can be possible you could certainly improve your ability to rapidly switch between 
two or more tasks such that you can maintain a higher level of performance, but it doesn't transfer really well across multiple different types of tasks. And largely, almost everyone is still going to be suffering suffering some degradation of performance compared to if they had a sole focus of attention. So I don't think it's necessarily something to aspire to. uh, But, you know, that being said, I I do like to give a little bit of the flip side in that it's not that multitasking is bad. It's not really a bad or good. It just depends what your goals are and what the tasks are. So there are certainly some things that are great to do together. And those are the things that don't demand a lot of focused attention that don't have a sort of high bar of quality performance that's required uh, things that are not time sensitive, things that are real, that are those and also really boring. Um, So, you know, sometimes you just want to lump all your chores together and put on the music and maybe just like do it for a little bit and then pop on social media. That's great. Like, I don't think that that is problematic behavior. I just think that if that's the behavior that you take to everything in your life, having a conversation with someone that means a lot to you, that is deserving of all your focus or writing that important article that's due in three hours. Yeah. It it takes a different way of engaging to accomplish those things than the former. So I like to just sort of say, you know, it's not like, you cannot engage in the world this way. You just have to make decisions about how you use technology. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's kind of like the whole idea of a podcast. I'm sure half the people that are going to be listening to this, they're probably going to be doing multiple things at a time. It's not just going to be, they have this audio thing on and they're journaling um, or they're just doing this. It's generally people that are exercising, they're walking, they're doing the laundry. And for those tasks, I'm, I'm sure it's fine, but I imagine they're not going to be, you know, solving complicated math equations and physics problems while they're being listened to this. So, yeah. Yeah, I, no, I it, it's, it, it's a really good point. Like those, all those examples, driving, exercising, doing laundry are pretty low attention demanding activities because they're very repetitive and they can be done uh, without like a large degree of attention. It's when two attention demanding tasks collide that there's incredible amount of interference. Now, the thing that's important about driving is that driving is often a low attention activity, especially on a highway or, you know, you're, an, you're basically an expert driver. You've been driving for 20 years, yeah. but it's only low Tesla. attention. <laughs> yeah, and you're, you're in your Tesla yeah. and it's taking over. But what I always say about driving, it's only a low attention activity until it isn't. <laughs> and by mm. that, I mean... Yes, for the most part, that's true. And you can fragment your attention by listening to the radio or a podcast or having a conversation with someone else in the car. But when someone steps out in front of your car (laughs) and now it's not a low attention activity, which is what I was referring to, now you have to rapidly bring all of your resources into making very rapid, uh, you know, somewhat reflexive decisions about how you're going to manage this. And having a fragmented attention will affect that ability. Uh, And then it matters what the other task is. If the other task is passively listening to music, it's different than trying to engage in a text conversation. Sure, sure. Yeah, and it's it's something that, um, uh, you know, we've had Stephen Kotler on, who's the 
kind of the the lead front, you know, he's really, uh, I guess, an authority, I guess, talking around getting into flow and what really you want to be focusing on uh, of achieving when you're doing this one single thing, right? You want to be in flow and you want to be really focusing on this one task. Uh, I'm curious to know from like a chemical level, what is happening when we're in say flow, which is kind of the top bar versus when our mind are, is completely scattered and, and multitasking. Yeah, there's still, you know, I know Stephen well, and we, we've talked about this topic a lot and I'm really interested in flow states because we try to achieve them. You know, we, we build video games. We talk about this a bit uh, yeah. to try to improve cognitive abilities and attention and, we try to take advantage of the fact that one of the assets of games are fun and engagement and immersion, and that people can get into a flow state during gameplay. And that game may be a video game. It may be a, a sport and surfing. I know something is, Stephen is really fond about talking about when it comes to flow. Uh, there's a lot that we, there's more that we don't know about it than we know. Uh, we know phenom- yeah. phenomenologically that there's a loss of sense of time. Uh, and, you know, high performance and all the other factors that go into describe it as a phenomenon. But in terms of the neural mechanisms, there's still very little data. It's actually something that we're now working on, trying to contribute more to. And the reason why is that states or events that are rare, like uh, an epiphany or the tip of the tongue syndrome or being in a flow state that are not possible to reproduce all the time, uh, are, are very hard to study as neuroscientists because there we get a very low signal to noise ratio when we're recording brain activity. And so how we reach conclusions about what's happening in the brain requires us to have many examples of that event. And then mm. we average them and factor out the noise and then the signal emerges. So it is challenging to study things that are not incredibly reproducible or more fleeting and transient in time and and ephemeral. Uh, Now, I'm not saying flow state is is like that completely, but it is not something that's achieved all the time by all people. So it does have some research challenges, but it is a really exciting area of investigation because once you could understand, you know, from a neuroscientific perspective, what are the mechanisms and neural processes that lead to that, then you can be more informed in designing experiences that elicit it. Yeah. And what, what, from what he's told me, which was really fascinating for me, is it transfers where if you can get into a rhythm of having flow and you've experienced it and this is just something that you're able to not maybe not reproduce exactly, but uh, have a uh, you know enough repetition where maybe you're skiing and you find flow there. It's easier to get into flow, uh, you know, now that you are maybe doing something creative or something like that versus someone that has never experienced flow before. And same with the reverses from from what you're I think what you're saying as well is like there seems to be this negative cycle where multitasking and being distracted makes us more susceptible to getting more distracted and, and, and having more interference into our, our cycle. Mm-hmm. So it's almost one of those things where we kind of want to put a plug because otherwise it's either going to be a really positive cycle for you or for most people, it's going to be a really negative cycle if you just can't mm-hmm. get control over that. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. And there's not a ton of data on that, but there is you know, this 
impression that I certainly read about and would love to study more uh, by which you create patterns across your life, which is essentially what we're talking about. And those, those patterns may be positive or negative, but they can transfer across different ways that you, uh, that you engage in the world. And yeah. that's really powerful because it means that you don't have to train and learn each thing separately as if it was an island and existing in isolation, that it becomes rather more of a style by which you engage in the world that you can then carry forth across different aspects. So I think that's Got it. really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I want to certainly dig into this idea of like, how do we take back control? How can we tell people that are listening? How do you take back control over distractions and the continuous growth of interferences that are going to be happening with technology? I'm curious to know for you personally, if you were just to kind of walk through some of the daily habits or processes that you've developed, just given all of your experiences and knowing that it's not going to work for everyone, but just to, for people mm-hmm. to get understanding from the moment you wake up to the, the, mm-hmm. the moment that you go to bed, are there three to four things that you do on a consistent basis that can help maintain clarity of mind and ensure that you're not as distracted? Yeah, sure. All right. Well, let me think about that. So some are really really easy because they're so prominent in my life. So one, one example is organizing a calendar a certain way. So I make, I put things in my calendar that I don't think other people do, or maybe not everyone does. I, I don't, I don't know for sure, but you know, my physical fitness, when I work out that that's in the calendar, if I am going to work on a paper um, as a single task activity, then I'm basically designating it in my calendar that this is a single task time. This is a non-multitasking event, as opposed to other time that I might call miss for miscellaneous, which means multitask away. All those other things that are, as I said, not time sensitive, not demanding of high quality, low attention, boring, they all go together in those buckets. So I really sort of try to bucket out times of single tasking and times of multitasking and make the decision about how I do it so that when I'm single tasking, I'm really committed to it. I know it's an activity I'm engaging in and whether it's physical fitness or writing a paper um, or having dinner with someone, that is what I am doing in those moments. And I'm really making the conscious decision to not be fragmented in my attention, not be distracted, not be jumping on social media or texting people in the middle of those things. So that's, that's one thing um, in terms of diminishing the amount of interference when I'm engaged in what I consider important high-level things. It doesn't have right. to be work. It could be social. But that, so designating it and putting it in the calendar and then respecting it and, um, and really being true to your intentions are, is, is one big part of my day. Just to dig into that, Adam, are you, do you see a pattern for you or have you maybe purposely intentionally done this where there's a certain part of your day where you decide to do single task or single focus task and another part of the day where you always seem to multitask and is there any research? Oh yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's changed over time. I, I like to do a lot of uh, single tasking. In, in the morning and then later in the afternoon and midday uh, is usually like a, a blurrier period for me where I let I, I've heard this as well from a morning. lot of successful people. Yeah. I, I, I never read that or, or I don't have any data on that. It's just what I've tended to migrate towards is like these two 
intensity clumps sort of earlier and then later. I used yeah. to do an evening one, but now I have a family, a little girl. Kids, that's, yeah. not happening. <laughs> yeah. that's not happening anymore. Um, so th- the other thing that I do, and this is a constant practice, is minimizing distraction in my work environment. Uh, even even now, I'm looking around my office. It's pretty it's pretty minimal. Uh, my desk is minimal. This is sort of how I left it. I didn't clean up before I vacated for a COVID quarantine shutdown. Mm. And it was, it was coming in here was a good reminder. You could even see a little bit behind me. It's not a lot of things around. And one of my um, my learnings from my reading and my own work is that we're really susceptible to being distracted. So not just multitasking, which is when you're making the conscious decision about doing more than one thing. So let's say I'm going to have this podcast, but on the side, I'm actually, you know, responding to a Facebook post or things of that nature. That's different. That's multitasking. And that you could quiet by setting those rules that we talked about. But independent of multitasking, there's just the interference that occurs by irrelevant information around you. And Mm -hmm. so minimizing that and having a clean workspace for me is very helpful. And so not having a lot of clutter, not having a lot of things. I mean, oh, I have a meeting to look at that uh, open, open multiple, having multiple browsers open is an example of that. Uh, that's the type of environment that I find conducive for focusing rather than, you know, one that's just full of things that you could just grab and dive into against your own intention. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I've seen someone's, cause this is one of the things I'm fascinated by just looking at someone's calendar, especially on Google where you can color code things. And (laughs) I've seen the pattern of people that have, you know, like, you know, the 15 minute slots or the 30 minute slots, which you can barely even see the descriptions of what the meeting is about. It's just a different color because it's so small and you're fitting all these things in. And this person has like five or six different colors and it's filled throughout the day. All the time, always, always, this person tends to be very anxious someone that's kind of up on top of their feet. Whereas the people that I found to be the most like chill, but also very results oriented, they've got this long list or sometimes it's just completely blank. Like I've heard, uh, what's his name? Jeff Weiner, former CEO of, of, of LinkedIn or currently CEO of LinkedIn. He intentionally schedules blank times where he, he doesn't do anything for two or three hours and I guess it allows them to like get the creative juices flowing. So um, I, I, yeah, have, that, I have that too. Uh, that was going to be the third thing I was going to say. I'm looking, mm. I'm just clapping over on my calendar. I have um, hold, I call them hold. They're, they have a certain color. They don't have any designated activity, but they prevent me from being on Zoom for eight hours, which could happen. If you, if you allow it to, if I, if I don't put those holes in my calendar, my assistant will literally schedule a meet from the morning <laughs> to the end of the day with no breaks, no food, nothing. That's sort of yeah. her job. Now, my job is to say, don't do that. And how does she know not to do that is that I am saying, hold, hold, hold. I don't, I don't need an explanation. It's just like I need, I need some time to slow down and to allow my brain to unwind, maybe to take a walk in nature. So breaks, that's the other point that I was going to bring up. Yeah. Breaks are really critical. They're not a sign of weakness or laziness or lack of productivity or, or lack of commitment. They are essential to high performance and that we need to recover from fatigue. And we know that in the physical fitness domain, it's, you know, every athlete knows you can't just train all day without stopping. You need intervals where your body has a chance to recover so that you could re-engage again at a higher level. 
It's the same thing with our brain. You need, after, especially after an intense period of an engagement, like, you know, I'll be on like a four hour board meeting, which is way (laughs) too long to start with. There should be a break period after that before you're, you know, back diving in. And that is, that is good for your brain. That should not ever be viewed in a negative way. And I have lots of those holes all over my calendar. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and I think just in terms of productivity alone, uh, to allow yourself to have these whole times, you kind of need to make the most of the time that you have dedicated to the work itself. And for me, what's particularly helped, maybe this is helpful for people, is, is like the Parkinson's law, which is the idea that work expands the time that you allow to fill it, where if mm-hmm. you give yourself a task that's, you know, that you think is going to be 90 minutes, let's say you're going to take 90 minutes to do it just because you've, you've slotted that in. Whereas if you gave yourself 20 minutes, you'll probably find a way to get that done in 20 minutes as well. Um, and, and I think mm-hmm. that goes along with your point around taking those breaks. Um, yeah. yeah that's, 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 it just reminded me of something, you know, I just, as you said, I just got back from a two month RV trip and I was working in the RV. So I didn't take vacation time and that was a bold move because I was in an RV. I'm not an RV expert. I was with, you know, my four month old daughter, my first child. I am not a parent expert. I had a lot, a lot of new things to do and to learn and to also make the decision that I was going to still work during that was pretty, Mm -hmm. pretty bold. Uh, But, and I was successful with it. It was challenging for sure, but I was successful, I believe. But what I learned was that, you know, saying no and and keeping um, your time that you're working really focused on the things that are most important, which is what I had to do. I had to do out of necessity. I was able to basically stay on top of all my critical things um, over that period of time, but with a lot less hours. So I, it's 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 another way of saying what you are. If I come in here and I'm like, I have eight hours to work. I'm going to come in in the morning. I'm leaving at night. I have nothing to do but work. I'm just going to fill it up. And whether yeah. I fill it up with critical things or not is, is really an interesting question. And what I believe is that I, wound, I, I was previously filling up my days with a lot of non-essential items because I had the time to just put mm. something in them. Is there an evolutionary explanation for why our human brain leads ourselves to doing that similar to why maybe the, the bottom-up interactions work because it's a, a threat? Is there a reason why we love to procrastinate or why we fill the time that we've allocated to ourselves instead of constantly being productive? Well, you know, I think that in general, and I talk about this a lot in my book, we are, we're information-seeking creatures and we're constantly filling up our brains with information in many ways as if it was food. We're just feeding on it. And if you, if you don't learn how to pause and not do that, we'll just consume. It's almost like, you know, um, binge eating. You'll just keep consuming that information. And that's what you might be filling your time with. Uh, so, you know, it, it, has, it has this evolutionary roots in foraging. And uh, we, we do a lot of that, uh, but not necessarily food for survival, but for information for these other type of rewards that our brain processes. And this has been shown even in, in monkeys and primates do this as well. So it might not be answering your question in terms of why we just fill all the time, but it is why 
what I believe is why we try to fill all of our time with information, right? So you're online. I, I give this example a lot because it's so profound and everyone knows it. And it's really, it's really hard to not do it, but you're online at the supermarket. There's only one person in front of you. You just have to wait like two minutes. You could just stand there <laughs> and think, or maybe, yeah. you know, uh, look around, but really go internal, or you could reach into the deepest information source in the world, which is in your pocket, and just dive into that black mirror and go, you know, off to another country for the next two minutes. And we do have this natural tendency to want to be cramming information, like drinking out of the fire hose into our brains all the time. And I think it's just like eating consuming food like in that fashion would not be good for you. I think consuming yeah. information, especially low level, like junk information is probably not good for you either. Mm, got it. Got it. This is a bit of a tangent, but this is more of a, a question that I'm constantly wondering about, which is when you're thinking about uh, the density of populations and where you're going to be living and spending a majority of your time, let's say New York and Hong Kong versus um I don't know, a smaller beach town, given that everyone can work remotely these days. I mean, what do you find to be healthier? And I think I know the answer to that question just based on how humans have evolved, but what are the positive and negative effects of living in, you know, more of like a highly populated uh, adrenaline filled city like New York city or Hong Kong versus, um, you know, like a smaller beach town or even just like a medium-sized town like Lisbon, let's say? Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard to answer that, I think, in a general way because a lot of it is influenced by individual differences and personality differences. And there's a whole field of research on introverts and extroverts. And some of it, I think, is pretty not, not great research. And some of it is really provocative about how your resting energy level might require you to fill up your brain with more input like music and social interactions, which is true of extroverts where introverts may not be at that same resting level and do not require that. And more too much of it actually puts them into a stress response. So right. it seems, and I'm not an expert in this, so I don't want to, I don't want to push it too far, but from what I have read and discussions I had with, with colleagues that are more um, informed in this domain, that some of it could be personality traits that, make someone more productive, more happy in two very different environments, like the ones you, you described. Uh, personally, I like variety. So I, I love living in a big city. I live right in the heart of San Francisco. I grew up in New York City. I love people. I love the energy. I love going to restaurants. I like music. I want, I like a little bit of chaos in my life. Mm. It feels good to me. And I, um, I think I flourish in, in environments like that, but I love the silence of, and, and, you know, calmness of being in nature as well, which is why I just went on this RV trip and spent months in national parks and hiking every single day with our daughter and being in, you know, big meadows and waterfalls and forests. So to me, I think that there are positive benefits of both of those environments and limiting yourself to one versus the other is going to minimize the maximal gain that you can get from experiencing both of them. 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And finding a way to live in, let's say, you know, a bigger city and then taking some time off to go completely unwind and having that balance is, is what you're recommending essentially. Yeah. At least that's what I recommend for myself. So as much as that's, <laughs> exactly. applicable, as much as that's applicable to someone else, that, that's what I find works really well for me. When I yeah. return to the city and, you know, even looking at this through the eyes of my four month old daughter, when I return to the city, it's just so different here. There's so many people. It's just almost like a energetic buzz in the air that's impossible to not feel. And yeah. it, it charges me in a, in a very different way than the quiet, natural world charges me, which it does charge me just in a different way. So mm. I like both. And having an RV, which is something I never would have thought I'd have before COVID, it's just, I never thought about it. I didn't even know much about it. But now <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is an amazing thing for someone that lives in a city because right. then I could just escape and live, basically bring a little home into, into nature. I love it. I love it. Well, Adam, for, for this kind of last part, I mean, I, I, I want to dig into certainly what, with what you're doing with Achilles Interactive and using video games to improve co- cognition function um, and, and just really go into how we can use technology, particularly with, I know people have some skeptics around things like Neuralink, where there's literally, you know, neurons and embedded into our brains. I mean, how do you see that playing out when it comes to the distracted mind and our ability to focus more? Yeah. You know, I, I look at technology through both lenses and I, I, I think it's appropriate. Same thing with video games, both sides. And um, you know, things are not often black and white. There's a gray to them and nuance. And most, things in nature slice both ways. They could harm or do good. And that's true of food, right? Or drugs or drugs that'll kill you, drugs that'll save your life. And it's true of technology too. Technology has certainly been a burden on our minds in the ways that we've been talking about from the distracted mind perspective. But that's because we interact with it in a certain way, either non-consciously or, or, or consciously. And what I am really fascinated with is the flip side of technology. How can information technology, um, I focused on video games, but there's other ways of slicing this. How can they be designed thoughtfully and um, systematically tested to show that it can actually do the opposite, that it can improve your attentional capacity and other aspects of cognition, like decision-making and memory and empathy and compassion. That is my passion now, and that's what I've been largely working on over the last 12 years. Instead of what my research focus was before this, which was the distracted mind, like why are our brains so susceptible to the negative impact of interference, and how does that get worse as we get older, all of those questions. Now my questions are very practical about how can we flip it around? How do we use technology in such a way that it can act as a refinement tool, an enhancement tool for people that are suffering neurological or psychiatric conditions as a type of medicine, which is my real, you know, really exciting um, couple of events over the last year, or how can it act as a tool to help elevate anyone, regardless of your baseline, that might need better order cognition? Like, who doesn't want to have better attention, right? So 
both for people that are suffering and people that are healthy, can technology be a source of enhancement of cognition beyond you know the values that it has in entertainment and communication and, and interactivity? Got it. Got it. Well, I, I want to dig into this further, but I, I know we're, we're short on time here, but you know, hopefully we can have you back for a round two. And I recommend every, everyone to check out uh, Achilles, A-K-I-L-I, right? Yep. Yep. Achilles Interactive. Maybe not to, to bury the lead on a future show, what, what uh, the big event was after 10 years, and this is a much long, longer conversation, um, uh, all the details. Uh, a, a game that I invented, meaning I filed a patent on the methodology that's owned by my university, where I am right now at UCSF, was licensed by a company I started called Achille Interactive. And what we have shown across dozens of research trials over the years is that the type of interactivity and the way that this game challenges and rewards you leads to improvements in attention abilities that are outside of the gameplay. And just in June of, of last year of 2020, we uh, achieved uh, FDA approval to use this game called Endeavor as a clinical treatment uh, for inattention in children with ADHD. So it was wow. the first ever video game approved by the FDA as a medical treatment and the first non, non-drug digital treatment for ADHD in children. So really exciting to see us finally achieve what we had been trying to, which is what we just talked about, that technology can really be used as a, as a tool to improve attention, not just as a way of diminishing it. I mean, that's amazing. Are you guys working on something for adults? Yeah. So we're expanding, you know, how it works with uh, the FDA and medical device and drug approvals that you have to have a very narrow indication that really is the same as the study protocol. And so it's, it's, it's laborious, but you have to like actually get approval for each population oh. as a different entity. Of course, we'd want to just approve it more broadly as a company because right, we want right. to have bigger insights, a better business model, but that's just not how the system works. So now we're taking it through the studies to get approval for adult ADHD and even senior ADHD and moving into different clinical indications that have attention deficits like depression and post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury. We have studies on COVID fog that we're now starting and, and dementia and, and conditions of aging. So yes, we're expanding dramatically into different, into different areas now. That's amazing. Well, I'm so excited for you, Adam. That's uh, I'm definitely going to keep a lookout and I highly recommend everyone to check that out. Uh, where can people learn more about you? I know you've got, again, 15 different things that are going on. So if we can direct our focus to a few different places that uh, you want them to go to, where would those be? Yeah, well, that's it's good that, that you asked that because one of my COVID projects was to build a, a website that aggregates all of my things. Because before yes. I'd be like, here are six different websites that you can go to. So now I have Ghazali.com. It's very yep. helpful to have a very rare last name. <laughs> and on, on Ghazali.com, so G-A-Z-Z-A-L-E-Y.com, I put all of the things I do from podcasts to talks that I've given uh, information about Achille and Sync and Jazz and all the work that we're doing at Neuroscape Publications, everything's on there. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I highly recommend people check that out. Adam, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate all the insights and a lot of the new uh, uh, things that you're working on that, that I know uh, I'm certainly going to check out myself. And um, yeah, we really appreciate everyone tuning in and we'll see you next week.
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.